Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing the ED pharmacist. As ever, all guidelines are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. All information given is correct at the time of recording. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello once again, welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, My name's Jamie, one of the teaching fellows uh, in emergency medicine, and um, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, my colleague, ED pharmacist, Canal Go Hill. Hello, Canal. Good morning, Jamie. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thank Appreciate you. it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming along, Canal. And um, we've uh, asked Canal to come down because uh, I think it's fair to say this year, Canal, I've noticed on Twitter and in conferences, there's quite a lot of interest in the role of pharmacists within the emergency department. Um, how long have you been in post now at the Queen's Medical Centre, ED? So in post uh, in ED has been since uh, since April 2016, so we're looking at getting on towards 18 months now okay. in ED. Um, pilot phase was one year, which ended sort of April of this year. Um, results were encouraging enough for a department to fund us to continue, so we've now got permanent role shop floor pharmacist in the department. So this podcast, we're going to just look really about how that came about, um, looking at um, you know, the background of, of a pharmacist and then how, how your role has developed whilst you've been in the emergency mm-hmm. department. Um, so first up, I mean, um, speaking for myself, I'm not um, entirely aware of what uh, of the training a pharmacist goes through. So mm-hmm. do you mind just letting us know what it's like over here in the UK, how long the course is at uni, etc.? You know, yeah, absolutely. Thing. I mean, so pharmacy... Allied medical professional course, so you do your GCSEs and A levels as normal. Uh, the degree program is a is a four year integrated masters, um, so three years of taught at sort of a, a bachelor's level, uh, and those three years sort of incorporate your basic human physiology, your your cell biology, um, clinical pharmacology, and medicinal chemistry. So sort of some real, it's quite theoretically heavy. Mm. Um, we do a bit of clinical practice as well, so there's competence clinical practice and then the fourth year is taught as a, as a master's year you do your dissertation you do a little bit more in terms of um, research methods and things like that um, after the four years finished you have your master's under your belt your M farm uh, and you do one year of supervised practice some people go and do that in community in, in your boots or, um, or what have you um, some people do it in hospitals um, and once you've done that one year of supervised practice demonstrate your competencies and take a big pretty tricky exam at the end of it and uh, if you pass all that you get on the register and you're you're armed with your green pen <laughs> why is it a green pen I, I really don't know i think it's just a historical thing it's green some trusts use purple but we've always used green <laughs> okay uh so um whilst at uni how much time in with a patient do you get uh, in farm so to be honest it, it depends it varies on course to course so there's about yeah. 20 25 odd schools of pharmacy um varies massively so my course uh, I was at the University of Hertfordshire we had quite a lot of patient facing roles so even from the first year we had placements out in community placements out in hospitals um, but it does vary on place to place I wouldn't say that compared to say medicine uh, or more of a patient facing role that you have you have that much um, mm. but we'd say go for a, for a couple of weeks a year on placements to get competencies done and that sort of thing so it is more of a it's more of a theoretical kind of um, kind of health profession so to speak okay um so think about yourself specifically then before you came to emergency department where was your background where would you worked mm, so you, so me specifically i whilst i was training up so whilst i was doing my master's um in pharmacy i, I worked in community so i was sort of a, 
a local chemist kind of boy, so we dealt with a lot of minor ailments, dispensing prescriptions, a lot of the sort of primary care type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, once I once I finished the masters, I didn't really fancy continuing that. I wanted to get more into the real, um, real clinical stuff. So I went and did my training year, that that fifth year, where you have to have a supervised practice. I did that in London at UCLH, um, which is a really good place, big big teaching hospital. So learned a lot there. Um, and then decided to continue in hospital practice, try and do a little bit more clinical things. So I came and did my basic grade here in Nottingham. Um, so that was a two-year residency um, where we do a clinical diploma in, in hospital pharmacy practice, um, learn up about the basics of cardiology, diabetes, um, orthopedics, neurology, your, your basic areas of medicine. So we get very familiar with the, with the drugs that we use in that. Um, after the two years, we're, we're competent as being specialists in those areas of medicine, not specialists per se, but very good at those areas mm-hmm. of medicine. Uh, and then typically we pursue our own particular specialist interest. And so for me, it's ended up being emergency medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, so then how did it come about that you were, were you came down to us? Because yeah. from my point of view, you, one day you weren't there and then suddenly mm. you were. And you That's were going, right, hello, yeah. I'm your EP pharmacist. So right. how, did, how did that come about? It was all a bit of a... Uh, was all quite fast to be honest so I was working um, I was working over in hyperacute stroke before mm. I came up um, there was a big pilot uh, that was done in 2015 um, in the East and West Midlands around um, it was run by Health Education England where there was a big drive to try and get pharmacists um, tooled up with extra skills to be able to see some of the minors cases to, to try and take the strain off A&E departments um, because it was identified as a priority we don't necessarily have as many doctors as we want to do um, so off the back of that, there was some figures saying that pharmacists could manage anywhere between 5 and 30% of the patients that come through A&Es. Okay. So quite a big, quite a big yeah. variance, but it depends on how skilled up the pharmacists yeah. were. So the idea was that s- somewhere around 30% is if you have pharmacists who have done an advanced practitioner course sure. in a similar way that, that our nurses do here. Um, so off the back of that, H- Health, Health Education England gave us a pot of money for a year's funding to explore that role. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the role that I went for because it was very interesting to me in terms of skilling up and being able to see and treat patients. Um, and that's how I, I basically got the job. And it was uh, there was a push for funding, and so we basically had to start on the day. To, otherwise, we would have lost funding in April. So it literally was the Friday I finished in hyperacute stroke and the Monday I showed up in A&E. <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah, so... What did you? What were your preconceptions then? As you, you that weekend, you think I finished stroke. I'm now coming into the emergency department. What What were your preconceptions? To be To be honest, I really didn't know. So I'm one of these weird people that have never I've never actually been to an A and E in my life. I've well never, done you. T- touch wood. I've never I've never <laughs> broken a bone or got cap or whatever. So I've never been to an A and E. So I knew it was a busy area, but I, I think in my head, I was thinking it was much more like a, an AMRU admissions type area. Because obviously I've worked on admissions wards and things like that, yeah. and I'm, I s- assumed it was this sort of a, this sort of a situation. I'd never physically been down to A and E before. Sure. So I, sh- I showed up on the first day because obviously I don't didn't have any real training. And I needed to get my orientation in the department, and it was a particularly busy day where we didn't have flow, whatever that meant. Yeah. And um, so I went to our majors department, and it was just like a war zone. It was um, I'd never seen anything like it. I thought I I, th- I really thought what I was getting myself into. There was maybe. 15 people in the middle of our majors area and then all the cubicles uh, filled up and then there was doctors and nurses running around and went to the resus area and there was a car crash with three people 
all major, all major traumas called in with probably 40 people in recess and I thought I don't know where to start here um, but that being said it was scary but I thought wow this is somewhere that I can't believe there hasn't been a pharmacist before um, and you could see very quickly just by picking up some charts and reading some of the notes that I could really get stuck in and, and help out as much as I can so what were your priorities then when you came in? So you, you started, you're in the emergency department, you think, oh gosh, what, what have I got myself into? You're looking at the charts. What, what, where did you think you, where, where yeah. was your priority when you started? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the, the funding, as I say, came from Health Education England about developing, developing an advanced practitioner role. Mm. So really speaking, my, my remit was to, to go in and find the areas that you can actually take on some of the responsibility. Mm. Now, the... The invariable problem with that was that I was generally quite a junior pharmacist when I first started. I'd only been qualified for about two years. Mm. I didn't really have any of that extra training. Sure. Um, I was due to go and start it. So when I came down, there was probably a lag period of three or four months where I didn't have the skills to be able to see and treat patients, but I was there and I had to do something. So pretty much what I thought I'd do is do the traditional ward role of a clinical pharmacist, which is go in, review the drug charts, get very accurate primary drug histories and try and find out if they're having adverse effects and um, try and streamline their, their journey from ED to the ward and try and make mm. it as safe as possible. So you're trying to see everyone? As, as, well, in the, it would have, would have been impossible considering <laughs> we get 500 odd patients a day. So originally I, I went in and quite simply all I did was anybody that was tagged for an inpatient stay, yeah. I tried to get them uh, a drug history done, tried to get medicines reconciled for them, sure. particularly the higher risk type people. Sure. Now pretty evidently early on, we, when you've got 20 to 30 people waiting for beds at any one point, you can't be effective in that role. Mm. So the, the service developed over the sort of first three to six months where we stopped trying to see everybody because mm. quite a lot of them were what we call medically low risk in mm. terms of not being on any particularly high risk therapies, not needing a real pharmacist input. Sure. To the patients that actually needed a lot more, um, a lot more input medically, uh, sure. medication wise. So people on insulin, Parkinson's meds, anti-epileptics, people that had sepsis, people that needed repeat antibiotics and yeah. tweaking of their fluids with lots of comorbidities. They they were the things that we could really offer things for. Okay. And so the service kind of developed where we were picking up these patients, identifying them, seeing them, then making um, making recommendations to the clinicians that were looking after them in A&E, pretty much just trying to safeguard them whilst they're in the department mm. and then improve their journey up onto the ward. Mm. So what sort of recommendations do you think you make then, so just off the top of your head? What can you think so there was, there was lots. I mean, a lot of them is, is around um, critical drugs. So when, when I talk about critical drugs, as I said before, I, I talk about pre-existing therapies these yeah. people are on. Um, so insulins and anti-epileptics and, um, and Parkinson's drugs and things like that. The simplest intervention I make is just ask them to be prescribed, yeah. which prevents them from deteriorating whilst they're in the department, prevents them from having another problem, so to speak. Um, you have a patient that comes in with a raging chest sepsis who's also a type 1 diabetic, for example. Mm. You can treat their, their cap beautifully with antibiotics and fluids and get your lactate, etc., but if you don't give them their insulin and put a plan in place for that, they'll deteriorate irrespective. Yeah. So it's very much looking at the background and making sure we're keeping them ticking over in terms of their, their comorbidities. Mm. So that would be a, a key one, just getting their regular therapies continued as appropriate. Um, another thing would be being the, what, what my role's kind of developed as is, is almost being the, the expert in 
looking at whether this presenting complaint could be due to an adverse effect of a medicine. Sure. So, I mean, it's been in the news quite recently. I mean, I think Jeremy Hunt's been saying that somewhere between 5 and 8% of all, of all cases coming into A&E are, are medication-related. Not sure whether that's true, but there certainly are quite a few. Um, things like a patient comes in confused and hyponatremic, um, and we do them a full workup for, for why this might be. And it, it's very easy for me to look at their medication regime and say they're on several drugs that stack that cause hyponatremia. If you think about reviewing them, you'll correct the problem. So to give you some sort of an explanation, yeah. a diagnostic um, reason for their presenting complaint from a medicine's point of view, to sort of have a drug head on about everything. So what is what is your what are your shifts then? So how what how long is your working day? What pattern do you do? And and what how does your normal as much as a normal working day can be in any what 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 do you do? Yeah, so absolutely. So I mean, the, it's changed over time. So originally, um, I, I used to start at seven thirty in the morning, um, when when the doctor's handover was, so I could be part of the team and the handover for that. Can feed back any particular medication issues on the day, um, and I'd work through to about three or four p.m. Uh, reviewing patients. Right now, we've only got funding for for myself, so it's very much thirty-seven point five hours a week, and we're we're trying to improve that because there's there's more scope for 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 doing more services down in ED. Yeah. A typical day is, is you come in at 7.30, I would review every single patient, and when I say review, I'd look at patients waiting in the department, get a primary drug history for them, this might not mean recording it, but looking at their regime, um, reading through the notes, so finding out what's going on with them, and then stratifying them in terms of a risk uh, whilst they're waiting in the department. Sure. High risk people would be patients that I think have had a, a medication related admission so the reason they're here is something to do with their medicines yeah um them being on a time critical drug so something that if they missed or wasn't looked at meant they could deteriorate within the department um patients generally have been di diagnosed with akis or have chronic kidney disease because we quite often have to change our normal therapies for these kind of patients and then generally just uh, cases that are at my discretion that i can look at so for example patients that have come in with falls or collapses that are on really big um, polypharmacy regimes, yeah. um, things that are quite often inappropriate. So are these things that we can tweak before we send them off home with their CT head being clean. Mm -hmm. um, so we'd make a list of these patients and quite simply I'd prioritise them for how how quickly I thought I needed to see them. I'd see them, get a get a drug history done, make my recommendations to the, to the clinician that's looking after them. Um, and then safeguard them, put them a medication plan in place whilst they're in an A&E, which hopefully helps them once they get onto the base ward as well. And when you say you take a, a drug history, do you see the patient or do you use a summary care record? or is it So quite often I'd, I might use a summary care record as my initial screening tool. Um, quite often I'll use previous discharges and, mm. and a combination of that and the medical clerking. Mm. I mean, from, from reading a case and looking at the background, um, I can quite often get a a very quick sense of what some what somebody might be on. Um, so, a Parkinson's case, I'm I'm very it's very likely that they're going to be on an anti-Parkinson's drug. If they're documented in their um, their history as having AF, for example, I know that there's a high risk that they could be on an anticoagulant. So I might need to dig deeper and find if they're on anticoagulant, um, which yeah. often changes the the need for a, for a CT head, for example. Sure. Um, so there's there's lots of different different little ways that I can get a drug history, but as whenever I can. I will always try and see the patient to be able to um, confirm that drug history, find out what they're taking. But obviously there's a lot of patients to see, so 
you have to use whatever means you can. Yeah. And then I suppose you, you can also liaise with the, if you know where your patient is going, you can liaise with the pharmacist on the ward there as well. Yeah, it's very much become what a, a, quite a big part of it now. So these particularly high-risk patients, and, and when I say high-risk, there's lots of different levels of high-risk, um, but people where we haven't necessarily been able to, where I haven't necessarily been able to action everything I wanted to action in A&E before they've been moved to a base ward, but I have quite a lot of information about the case at that point, um, I can directly hand them over to our, to our ward team's uh, pharmacist ward teams on base ward and they can follow up and be able to do the investigations that, that I don't have the time to do in A&E. Mm. So there's a good continuing flow of, um, of information between the two departments. Mm. Excellent. I suppose you, you also, I mean, you can also offer, and I, I know you have for my, me myself, if uh, a patient's condition means that they can't take an oral medication, you are able to offer alternative routes, say they're on a regular um, anti-epileptic, anti-Parkinson's, that's yeah. sort of advice I've, I've heard you give. Yeah, it's, I mean that's very much our, our, our sort of specialist role in terms of substituting therapies and, and manipulating formulations. Um, I mean you can't do it for all, all drugs, I mean a classic example would be when we, we have a patient with Parkinson's disease mm. that, that's unwell and we can't safely allow them to swallow their tablets, we can sometimes convert to a, to a patch which will, which will give us some time, we can think about converting, well we can think about popping an NG tube down as you say, epileptic tablets, we can switch to IVs, we can switch to, switch to suppositories. Sometimes we can change the therapy altogether and go with a completely different approach. It's all a case-by-case -case basis, but having a point of contact, which is what I found is probably the most important thing, um, having a pharmacist on the shop floor visible and readily available, um, I found that clinicians will use that service more than if it's a wizardy type service where um, it's it's a contact number that you bleep for advice yeah um, and we've got evidence to, to show that I mean when we've looked at the um, before I started in A&E um, that's the kind of service we had where we had a pharmacist who was um, who was responsible for A&E um, but it wasn't a shop floor service so whenever they were needed they were rang they would come down they would they would offer the advice which is fine so when we've looked at the number of patients and number of interventions we've made whilst we've been on the shop floor versus that older service, it's almost 10 times as many interventions and, and uses, even though the, the queries are very similar. Sure. So it just goes to show the physical presence is much more well utilized. And there's actually a lot of literature about- Actually to actually, approach, you just yeah, there. Absolutely, absolutely. And developing a personal relationship as well. Yeah, the rapport is really important because at the end of the day, I was originally a stranger walking into a &E. You don't know much about my background. You don't yeah. know much about my training. Um, so it's more than reasonable for uh, for a and &E, I mean, consultants and registrars have been doing the job for a long time to be wondering why I'm down there telling you what to prescribe and what yeah. to do there. So I think over the over the over the time period, just the trust um, in being able to recommend things and. and take recommendations is, is developed as well which is actually a really important part of it um, getting new people down is is a, is a problem because you have to develop that trust in that rapport because yeah. it is a high risk environment it's an um, environment where you're working under time constraints and there's no top end of patients that you're going to be able to see yeah so if someone's making a recommendation for you you have to be happy and have the trust that that's an appropriate thing to do sure. um, I often hear this phenomenon that I'm not sure how true it is but that there are some people that, that A&E is a very 
chalk and cheese, black and white place. You either like it and fit into it, and, and it, it's the sort of place that you can work, yeah. or it's somewhere that you absolutely hate, and, and mm. people, you know, they experience it and they move away. Do you think the same might be said for pharmacists? Oh yeah. So I think pharmacists in general, um, we're pharmacists are, are, are risk averse people. Uh, the whole the whole idea of the job role of pharmacists working in in hospital practice is to mitigate risk. And the problem with A and E is you're working in possibly the most high risk environment in the hospital as far as I'm concerned. You're dealing with situations where you have limited amounts of information, you're under time pressures, um, and you have limited resources available. So I think for me, that's where I find that the skills that I have as a pharmacist in terms of being able to very quickly look at a medication regime, find out if there's an adverse effect, find out if anything we're gonna start in terms of treatment for this patient is gonna interact or give us further problems, um, and put a plan in place with limited information is something I really thrive on. I really, really enjoy it. I think some of my colleagues might struggle with that. Um, they'd want a lot more information before basing a recommendation on it, mm. which is always gonna be a problem because you've got limited information. Um, generally, there aren't that many pharmacists actively working clinically in, in A&Es across the country at the moment. It's a, it's a growing thing. Um, so I think at some point it's probably going to become a, a specialty. Clinical pharmacist in, in emergency medicine will become a specialty unto itself. Yeah. Um, and, and it's something that we're, we're sort of collecting evidence on and mm. we have to come up with guidelines in terms of uh, making particular recommendations in particular scenarios when we don't have the full amount of information. Mm. So it's a difficult one. For me, I really thrive on it and I think it's probably where you can make the biggest impact. Excellent. Um, so you, you mentioned already that you, you've collected some evidence about the improvements that the service has brought. Have you got any other examples of any data? Yeah, I mean, we've collected a lot of data. So over that, uh, over that pilot period, as, as I've kind of alluded to, the, um, the, the funding we had was for, a, for an advanced practice role. That very much morphed over that year to, um, to a clinical role. And we obviously only had the money for, for one year, so we had to, to prove our case for, for continuing it. Um, so what we did was we, we collected every single, pretty much every single intervention we made and every single patient we reviewed and saw over time. Um, we made somewhere in the region of, uh, of 1,500 to 2,000 clinical interventions or recommendations in patients' care um, over the course of reviewing about eight to 12,000 cases. So a lot of cases were reviewed over that time period. Um, when we then looked at these very carefully in terms of the severity and the importance of the of the interventions we were making, um, and we compared that to what pharmacists usually do in the trust, we found that the, the severity of the contributions were about generally four times more serious or severe mm -hmm. than the typical contributions a pharmacist would make on okay. a ward level. So when I say serious or severe, I mean if these interventions weren't made, they have the potential to cause significant morbidity or occasionally even mortality to a patient. Okay. So an example would be, for example, omitting a whole day's worth of anti-Parkinson's medications, yeah. um, which has the potential to cause quite serious morbidity. Um, when I talk about mortality, trying to give tazosin to a patient with a pen allergy, which unfortunately sure. does happen. Yeah. Um, so lots and lots of interventions that's, that's improved that sort of, um, that quality. Um, the other thing we've looked at is efficiency mm. um, in helping frontline ED clinicians. Um, so some of the things I do are taking the pressure off ED clinicians. So the classic being quite complicated medica medication information inquiries. 
Um, so as we've said before, changing an anti-epileptic therapy to, to an IV or switching it over. Um, a, a junior ED clinician, it could take them quite a considerable amount of time to look into the evidence, to look into the resources and, and make a recommendation. They then probably take that to a registrar or a consultant who wants to agree with their plan, and then they've got to implement the change. There's now a point of contact with me. Um, I'll give you a good example is um, a patient on Valparate who's nil by mouth because their GCS is low, but mm. we obviously need to get it into them. Mm. I'll give them a straight mm. IV switch, give them a new regime. Um, I'm the expert in that field, so they feel happy to prescribe it on yeah. my recommendation. It takes the pressure off the regs and the consultants, uh, and the patient gets the drugs quicker. So we found somewhere in the region of 200 hours worth of ED clinician decision maker time saved by that. Mm. Um, so a decent amount of efficiency savings there. Mm. Um, similar, similarly, we looked at nurses, um, how are we helping our nursing colleagues? Um, it was one of the things when I first came into the department that the ED nurses are, are, are really running around struggling with medications. Um, first thing we did was did a big overhaul of all the stock we keep in ED to make sure we've got the right things for these yeah. nursing staff when they need it, where they need it. Sure. Um, so putting the correct drugs in place. And then obviously we've, we've got situations where patients are coming in who are on very peculiar therapies or things that we won't, might not necessarily have easy access to, very particular insulin regimes, very particular cardiovascular regimes, that again we need to think about continuing to prevent them from deteriorating. We don't want nurses running to other wards or to other areas to try and obtain these. This is just causing a delay. It's not a nurse's job, really speaking. Medication supply is absolutely a clinical pharmacy job. Mm. So what we're able to do is um, a nurse is very quickly able to approach me and say, this is a drug um, that's been prescribed. I don't think we've got it here. Can we get hold of it? I can say to them, yes, we can, we can source that. And uh, the pharmacy then take on the responsibility of sourcing it, getting it down, and then the nurses just administer it, which is, which is the way the chain of command should be, so to speak. Um, and that being said, just as much, we can make a clinical decision and say, actually, I know these have been prescribed, but this patient's going to the ward in half an hour, and there's be very little harm for it to be handed over onto the ward. Sure. So looking at some of the nursing efficiency savings, again, somewhere between 200 and 250 hours of nursing time saved, which you can double up if you think about it, because if you haven't got a nurse doing what they need to be doing in the department, it's going to take someone else to do it. Yeah. So nursing colleagues have really enjoyed the service as well, and um, when we've got a bit of feedback from all the staff, so unanimously from the from the administrators, the, the, the flow progress chasers, consultants, regs, junior doctors, nurses, they found the clinical pharmacy service in ED to be massively beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, so putting it all together, um, and, um, and putting it to a cost saving. We have some equations that we use in pharmacy where we plug interventions and efficiency savings into, into cost savings. And we estimate some in that year period, we, we've saved somewhere in the region of um, three quarters of a million pounds to 1.3 million pounds. Now that's in terms of prevention of adverse effects, um, bringing down bed waiting days, um, sorry, length of inpatient stay, because of preventing these, nursing time saved, ED clinician time saved, it's all potential savings, so it's not like we've actually been seeing patients and taking the pressure off that way, um, but it gives us an illustration of how much we've been um, been impacting the team from a financial point of view, which is obviously always the difficult thing in making a case about a full-time service. 
Excellent. So where do you see it going? If you look into your crystal ball, you've, you've mentioned you think it'll be a subspecialty. Do you, do you see this, you know, contacts that you've had, the interest that you've had, do you think in the future every emergency department will have a 24-7 pharmacist or...? I think, I think a 24-7 is, is probably asking a little bit too much for a, for a physical presence. For me, at the moment, we've, we're 18 months in and we've got one solid permanent pharmacist uh, nine to five for a weekday, which isn't bad after 18 months and we've got a plan for it to be continued. The, the first step now is to expand that service. Um, so really speaking, when we look at the patient profile that I see when they come into A&E uh, and the workload, one pharmacist isn't gonna be able to cut it, really speaking. Sure. The model we're building on is, is similar to our admissions unit here in Queens. So what we want to do is try and expand the service to a seven day a week service. Um, Saturday and Sunday should be included. There's no real difference between a Saturday and Sunday and a weekday in A&E. You're gonna get a similar amount of patients with a similar high risk profile. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to expand the hours that we're actually here. So really speaking, um, when we've looked at the data, we thought 12 hours a day is more than reasonable to, to encompass probably around about 75% of the, of the patients we want to see. Yeah. Um, so we'd be looking at something like an eight to eight Monday to Sunday service to run every day of the mm -hmm. year, which fits in well with what the NHS is trying to get to at the moment. Um, obviously, when we've, when we've put this to, to some of the CD, senior um, ED management, some have said, why can't we have a 24-7 service? I think it wouldn't be a bad thing, um, but I think trying to recruit and trying to manage a service that big would be pretty difficult. And, yeah. and at the moment, we do have on-call pharmacy services between midnight and yeah. eight in the morning that, that are always there if you need something. Mm. Um, but that's what we're building towards. Really speaking, that's gonna take five or six pharmacists to start that on a continuing basis. Sure. So that's what we're needing to build towards. Um, whether whether or not then there's a there's another pathway of um, pharmacists go, going back to that original idea of becoming advanced practitioners uh, and actually seeing and treating some of this patient profile is the next thing that we can look at. But there's such value we've found so far in clinic just traditional clinical pharmacy services in ED. That's something we don't have to pursue till a bit later on. Okay, and then just finally, any obviously a whole podcast hopefully is. Um advisory but if anybody's listening this uh, listening to this and, and thinking you know from another department another emergency department elsewhere think about bringing in pharmacists any any advice just off the top of your head yeah I mean I, I think it's it's one that we never really fully considered it until we got someone down here so I I'd almost suggest if you've got an ED most most emergency departments in, in NHS trusts around will have a pharmacist attached to them probably not necessarily directly working on the shop mm. floor but if this is something that's interesting to you um, try and make contact with with that contact and see if you can organize a pilot even if it be just for a week just for working on the shop floor yeah. and seeing seeing what can be done because that can really whet the appetite for forming for a business case then. absolutely absolutely so there's, there's usually always a point of contact I, I would get that um, involved I mean our, our service here we've published a, a couple of papers now and there's some posters that have gone out so I'd encourage you to have a little look at that and, uh, and look in more depth at some of the data we've created. Um, and generally just try and, uh, I mean, I've been very lucky here when I come down, I've worked in particular departments before where you're not necessarily as a, as a pharmacist that well welcomed into the team. Uh, and for me, when I, the first day I came down and introduced myself to the, the nurses in charge and 
and the consultants in charge, they understood the benefit and were very, very welcoming to me and very accommodating to me. And that really drove me forward in being able to make interventions. So if you are getting pharmacists involved, it's trying to welcome them and trying to make use of what they can do for you as best as you can. As best as you can. Brilliant. Uh, and if we can have, um, I'll put up um, a link to uh, to those papers. Yeah, if absolutely. So absolutely. Um, we'll do that on the on the take orally uh, blog. Um, thank you so much for coming, Canal. It's been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for working in the emergency department. You've been, <laughs> you've been brilliant. Um, we'll be doing some podcasts in the future, looking more at specific therapeutics. But I thought it was important just to get this general sort of podcast yes. out there first. But uh, thank you so much. Absolutely, pleasure. That was the ED Pharmacist Take Orally podcast. You can find a specific blog uh, and this podcast at takeorally.com. Uh, the podcast is also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can also find Take Orally on both Facebook and Twitter. For more information about research and education opportunities in acute medicine, emergency medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.